from the book of Acts. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. Tomorrow, 78 years ago, tomorrow, June 6, 1941, was the Allied invasion of Normandy in France. We call it D-Day now, but it was actually called Operation Overlord. It was the code name for the assault, and at 8.30 in the morning tomorrow, 78 years ago, Allied troops stormed the beaches at Omaha. We've seen Saving Private Ryan. We've seen footage of the assault. We look back on these events, and we celebrate, rightly so, the bravery of those men that made that charge, the incredible loss of life, and just the grit it took to jump off a boat and charge into a machine gun. We admire the bravery of both the Allied soldiers making the assault and actually, if we're honest, the people that were defending the position. After all, if you know your history, the people on the Atlantic Wall weren't Germans. They were Poles and Czechs. Rama was there. Well, should have been. But the point I want you to see here is it took an incredible bravery all around for that assault to occur. We think back on the events of June 6, 1941, with reverence and awe of the bravery of those men, rightly. But I want to challenge you something. Think about it like this. What if you were President Dwight Eisenhower at this very moment, 1026, June 5th, 1941? Put yourself in his position, right? The uncertainty, the fog of war, the incredible decision you have to make to send these men in or to hold them back. What you might not know is the Nazis knew something was coming. The Allies had been preparing in England for, for months. The buildup of the Allied forces, the assault forces were there. The Nazis had spies in England. They knew something was coming. They assumed it was the Pas de Calais, the closest area between the two. The Normandy was the actual assault. But the point is that you can't, if you wait, you'll run the risk of being discovered. The flip side is that the weather in the channel was dangerous. There was a storm. And Eisenhower knew that if he ordered the assault and the, and the storm was in place, the assault would be wiped out and defeat would be imminent. So what do you do? What do you do? It's a difficult decision. And in fact, when Eisenhower made the, made the, uh, finally gave the order to go forward, his words were this, let's go. That's it. And he got in his car, and he told the driver, as he was taking him away from wherever he was, he said, I hope to God I'm right. <laughs> the point I want you to see here is, despite the casualties on both sides, despite the incredible loss of life, despite the moms that didn't see their sons come home, the invasion was a success, we now know. But it was close. It was close. And the thing I want to draw upon today is this, that on D-Day plus one, June 7th, 1941, Allied victory was certain. Everybody knew it. Once the beachhead was established, once the, once the invasion had been completed, and the, uh, the Western powers could bring in supplies onto the Western front of the German army, now they're being attacked from the West and the East, the Russians and the Allied forces. Everybody knew that victory was assured. Everybody knew it. 
Why am I talking about this on the Feast of Pentecost? Ah, I'm going to tell you why. Because today is the Feast of Pentecost, which, like 78 years ago, assures us that despite the battles we face in our lives, victory is assured. How? How is Pentecost like the assault on Normandy? Everybody thought it would fail, and it wasn't. And on on D-Day plus one, everybody knew it was just a matter of time. What does this tell us about the nature of God? Three points today from our texts. We see God the destroyer. We see God the builder. And we see God the victor. God the destroyer of Babel. God the builder of the church and God the victor when he returns. You ready? You guys are quiet today. You ready? God the destroyer. When we read in Genesis this famous story from Genesis chapter 11 of the Tower of Babel, all the humans on the earth had a common language, and they get this idea, this great idea, right? This build back better idea. Let's make a tower, right? And, and, and you say, okay, well, big deal. But look at, if you look at why they made the tower, that's the key to the whole text. Let us build ourselves a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Let us make a tower and let us make a name for ourselves. You know, not too long ago, two weeks ago, Kathy and I were in Springfield, Illinois for the consecration of my friend Brian Burgess as the Bishop of Springfield, Illinois. Springfield, Illinois. Anybody here from Springfield? I hope not. Okay, good. So, I'm just kidding. Springfield, Illinois, there's not a whole lot going on there. Lincoln was born there, and I think that's the last big thing that happened, frankly. Um, You pull into Springfield, Illinois, nice people, but not much going on. And we pull up to the town in Springfield, which isn't very big, but there's this great big, enormous 25-story high, maybe not 25, but tall, 20 stories hotel called the Wyndham Downtown, right? Downtown, which is about as big as our downtown over here in Vero Beach. It's this enormous 25-foot, 25-story building. We get in the room. We're looking down over the city of Springfield, which isn't much. And I said to my wife, why in the world would anybody build a building this big in Springfield, Illinois? It's a good question. It's not needed. This is not, this is not downtown Miami, for example. This is Springfield, Illinois. You don't need a tower that big. Why? I said to Kath, why would anybody build this here? Well, I'll tell you why. There's only one reason. There's one reason. Pride. The pride of Springfield, the pride of whoever the architect was, the pride of the builders, the pride of, I don't know, Wyndham. The point I want you to see here, this tower, in, this tower in Springfield, Illinois, was there as a mark of pride. And the Tower of Babel is precisely the same thing. A monument to human pride. A monument to wanting to reach God on our terms rather than on his. Let us make a tower to the heavens so we can make a name for ourselves. That's what these Babel builders say. And before you think of that as a bunch of very primitive people from 5,000 years ago, whatever, we all do this. We all do it. Let me ask you a question, and it's it's a real question. It's not rhetorical. What is your Tower of Babel? What are the things that you use in your life to earn respect and meaning for yourself? What are the things that you live for, that you strive for, the things that you use to prove yourself that you are a person of worth and value? 
Well, it's probably a couple of things. Money, career, your kids, your, fr- your friends, your wife. Maybe it's because you're the rector of the fastest growing church in the diocese of Central Florida. We all do it, my point. The problem is we've all got these things that we put in the place of God, these things that we use as idols that we use to put someone or something in the place of the one thing, the one person who should be there, and that's Jesus Christ. The problem is, you see, here's the problem. With these idols, no matter what they are, your kids, your job, your career, your whatever it is, I don't care what it is, fill in the blank, you've all got them, you know what they are. The problem is that these things will always fail you. They cannot not fail you. The things that we put in the place of God as marks of who we are as people, our identity, they will fail you. They cannot not fail you. God knows this, which is why God is merciful and which is God is the God who destroys, listen, our idols. God thwarts the Babel builders. He thwarts these tower builders, not because he doesn't love them, you see, but because he does. He doesn't blow up your world because he doesn't love you, but because he does. He'll do it with you. He's done it with me. Give you an example. When I was an undergrad at Penn State, if you don't know this already, some of you do, some of you don't. I was an undergrad at Penn Penn State. My plan was to go to graduate school, get a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology, work for a consulting firm, KPMG or something, and make a ton of money. That was my plan. That was my goal. And I did it, actually. I left Penn State. I went to NC State for a PhD in, in industrial psychology on a full scholarship. And not only that, They paid me to go to school. I was paid to be a teaching assistant and teach uh, statistics and scientific research methodology. That's what I did. I was 21 years old, a mere pup, and I was off to grad school for a PhD at 23 years old. I was proud. I was cocky. Nothing could stop me, man. Here it is. And I then realized later on that I was miserable. God blew it up. It's a long story. I won't bore you with the details. But it was a real season of confusion for me. My whole identity, my whole future plans were wrapped up in this idea of what I was going to do. And God blew it up. I I quit. I quit grad school. I got tired of it. I was burned out. I was... Anyway, it's a long story. But the point I want you to see here is God turned my world upside down. Not because he doesn't love me, but because he does, you see. Losing an idol, whatever it is, is always suffering. Losing the things that you lean on for your identity and your self-worth and who you are is always going to involve suffering. Just like the period of time between D-Day, the assault, and V-Day 11 months later. When God brings down your idols, friends, it is suffering, but God is working on you, growing you up by destroying your idols, by seeing the things you relied upon before your Tower of Babel does not satisfy the cravings of your heart. So where is your Tower of Babel? What are the things you've leaned on in your own life that God has taken from you? Be grateful. Because God is a destroyer of idols. Thank you, Lord. But God is, point two, also a builder of something better. Fast forward to Pentecost, which if you don't make the connection, Babel is when God confuses their language, and Pentecost is when God restores their language, right? Did you see the connection? 
Pentecost is the undoing of Babel. And the reason it is, point two, is because God builds something better. We hear that when Luke tells us when the Feast of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place. All the church was there, and a sound like a rushing wind comes into the room. And, it, and fla- tongues, of, tongues of like fire, whatever that is, rested on each one of them. What's going on? Well, what God is doing is he's destroying the Tower of Babel 5,000 years late, earlier, but now he is, too, building something better. And here's the thing. We had a tropical storm yesterday, right? It's kind of a nothing burger. Lots of rain, but not that much wind, right? But Floridians, we think of wind as destructive, right? We, think of, we live in a hurricane area, right? So for us, wind is destructive. But in the Jewish mind, in the Jewish mind, wind is something which is creative. I'll give you two tr- quick examples. First one, in the, in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, the very first page of the Bible, the earth is formless and void, and darkness covers the water. Water is, a, in the Jewish mind, a symbol of everything wrong. And, a, and the wind of God rushes and creates, forms the earth. Second example, Ezekiel. The uh, prophet Ezekiel sees a vision of the army of Israel, these dead bones rattling to life. The wind, the breath of God comes through, and we see these people come to life to go and to assault the, arm, the enemies of, of the Jews. The point I want you to see here is that God uses wind, breath, it's the same word, to create something permanent. The what does God create on the Feast of Pentecost as the Holy Spirit rushes in? He creates a supernatural army. He creates the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Empowered by God's breath, empowered by God's breath, by God's spirit, by God's action to change the world, an unstoppable force, a permanent force, empowered, listen, by God. Now I'm going to ask you a question. You look at the church around you, you read the press, you read the news articles about whatever, the Episcopal Church just at large, whatever. We read these things and we get depressed. I want to challenge you to see it from the way that Jesus sees the church. Not as an organization, not as a salvation army with a, or a, a social justice organization with a big cross on top, but an unstoppable force, a permanent force, an army empowered by God. Do you believe that? Because Jesus did. And I want to show you. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, Jesus says to Peter, And I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church. Here's the money line. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Listen to that again. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Notice something critical there. The gates of hell will not prevail against against us. It's not the other way around. We are not a purity cult. We are not here to be, to hunker down and draw the circle tighter and tighter and tighter to keep those people out and only these people in. No. So many times the church takes on a bunker mentality. The entire Reformation was about this very thing, that we protect our faith. We circle the wagons. We, we draw our arrows and we, we, we resist the onslaught of secular progressivism, for example. Nonsense. Here's why we win. The gates of hell do not prevail against us, friends. 
Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against you. We are on the offense. We are going to storm the hill. We're going to assault the beach because we are empowered by God, literally, to change the world. And he will. You know, on the eve of the Depression, I'm in a big history kick this week for some reason. On the eve of the Depression, Franklin Roosevelt said famously in his inauguration address, you know this, the only thing we have to fear is what? Fear itself. He's right. What I mean is that the, the only way the church can fail in our fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil, the only way we can fail is if we fear and we run away and we give up. There is so much weird going on in the world today. You know, the Babylon Bee is a famous satire site. They said recently, like, we're out of stuff, man, because everything we make fun of actually comes true. You know, the world is getting so strange. I read this article about this person up at, at Penn, not Penn State, who's a guy swimming on the female's swim team as a woman and is offended because people are asking. It's like, wait, man, you're like, okay, whatever. My point is, I mean, sometimes, you, you look, you're like me. You read the news, and whatever side of the aisle you're on, I don't care about that. What I'm, my point is, you reread the news, and we shake our heads, and we think, what in the world is going on here? we got to do something about this. And or we give up, and we fear, and we say, ma'am, it's just, it's just too strange. The battle is lost. Let's just, let's just stay home, honey, from church and watch, you know, Netflix. We stand down. But friends, that's not what Jesus says. (laughs) He says, the gates of hell do not prevail against us, you see. The only way we can lose is if we give up. The only thing we have to fear as Christians is fear itself. And if that's true, that God creates, God destroys our idols because they are, they are, they are destructive towards us, and he creates something new. If that's true, if the church is a supernatural, permanent, enduring organization empowered by the very wind and breath of God, which is also true, then something else is true, and that's my third point, that you and I have hope. Back to the story on D-Day plus one, June 7th, 1941, Victory was assured. Everybody knew it. The Americans knew it. Rommel knew it, for crying out loud. Everybody knew the game was over. It was only a matter of time. There will be casualties. There were casualties. There was suffering and death. But by D-Day and V-Day, on D-Day plus one, everybody knew the matter was decided. Everyone knew victory was assured. Friends, as the church on this Feast of Pentecost If Jesus wins when he returns, and he does when he returns, then the matter is already decided. Victory is already assured. It's not a matter of if, but when. And if that's true, that means you and I can have hope because when we look around this world and we see the incredible suffering, D-Day to V-Day, we see the mass of casualties We can look around and say, we know the Lord is returning. We know that victory is assured. And for that reason, we can have hope. You know, hope is not wishful thinking. Hope is the assurance of things. Hope is is when you live a life knowing that even though we all struggle, God knows, in our lives with suffering, we know how the story ends, that when Christ returns, the world will be put to rights. The dead shall be resurrected. And in that, friends, we hope. You know, encouraging, being encouraged, is one of the most important things you can do for the 
welfare of another being. Being encouraged is someone who gives courage. Right? Being encouraged is when you, you remind somebody of the real end game, not to look down, but to look up. And be reminded that when Christ returns, victory is assured. Yes, there will be suffering. People will die. But we don't lose hope, you see, because we know the end game. I'm going to leave you with our Lord's very words about this very topic, that Jesus wins. And because that, and only because of that, we can carry on in this world despite the sufferings within it. Jesus says in John chapter 16, verse 33, he says this, in this world, before he returns, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Cardia means be encouraged, be strengthened. I have overcome the world. In this world you will have struggle, but take heart, friends. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for blowing up the idols we place in our lives, of thwarting our own towers of Babel that we put in your place. We thank you, Lord, for that. It's painful, it's suffering, but ultimately that is for our benefit, to keep our eyes focused on you. Help us, Lord, to see the things you're building in our lives. Help us, Lord, to trust in the church which we belong to. Help us to take our role seriously within it. And help us, Lord, to have hope as we wait for the victory that is assured. And all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook. Facebook.